we're back with uh, I can't call it a special edition because uh, <laughs> we were going to do it anyway <laughs> on uh, July 4th, uh, celebrating Dependence Day, and um, so this is a regular show as usual. No um, um, reruns, no tape stuff. It's uh, live with uh, Chris Pinto. Um, you've not heard him here for uh, it might be even two years. Last time he was on, uh, we were addressing the work he did, and we will talk about that somewhat today as well about his uh, Megiddo series, uh, The March to Armageddon. But today, uh, we are going to talk uh, about, um, and central to this interview, will be uh, the, uh, the documentary he has just done. He's uh, partnered up with David Bay, and that's called Secret Mysteries of America's Beginnings, the first volume, The New Atlantis. And um, <clears throat> very, very um, gracious of him out on the coast, which is obviously three hours behind us on this holiday, He's deigned to get up and be ready to go at 8 a.m. And so from California, we have Chris Pinto. Thanks for visiting again the Grassy Knoll. Well, thank you for having me on the Grassy Knoll. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, we appreciate it, too. It's been too long. Um, all right, uh, let's get right down to the good stuff. Uh, you know, I, I've been a, a fan, as many people have been, of the Megiddo series. Uh, but now we have something else going on here that you've gotten involved with, and apparently this is going to be a, a multi-volume work uh, under the heading of Secret Mysteries of America's uh, Beginnings. So, um, first of all, uh, you guys had a run in the New York Film Festival, I believe. Why don't we pick it up there as to what took place and how it was received? Well, the uh, uh, the film, we released the film back in, uh, or started to, started to release it. It's kind of a a little bit more involved process when you're when you're trying to get it into film festivals and that kind of thing because you're not supposed to officially release it. Uh, but we sent it to festivals, a number of different film festivals, and we were picked up by uh, uh, the New York uh, Independent International Film and Video Festival, uh, and they uh, they actually accepted the film and granted us a, a screening, I guess, back in May um, for Secret Mysteries. And uh, so it was. Uh, it was the what they call the official selection. And uh, then when the fest festival uh, finished out, we ended up winning uh, best documentary feature. Uh, so uh, uh, so that was a pretty good experience overall. It seemed to be very well received by the festival. I was kind of surprised. Uh -huh. It's a secular festival, and they're not normally savvy to the kind of things that we're talking about there. But I think with the popularity of, uh, you know, uh, the whole Da Vinci Code controversy, mm, right. all of the information coming out about secret societies and, and uh, all of these, uh, you know, ancient orders working in the modern world, uh, a lot of people have been really fascinated with the information. And uh, I think that was the case with the New York Festival. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, were you surprised about the reception? Of course, you've said, yes, you are. And then you make a good point, and that we see in, um, in pop films and pop culture this uh, emergence of things that are mentioned in the Da Vinci Code, which I think is a double-edged sword there. Um, I think a lot of people want to believe, and perhaps Dan Brown's book had, a, uh, shall we say, a an ulterior motive in a sense that you would expose these things and then make it seem ridiculous when really he was dealing with a lot of factual information. This is not to talk about you know Mary Magdalene. We're talking about the secret societies. So because you guys did it from um, a factual-based uh, point of view, did you sense or were you told directly that people who thought this might have been hoodoo in fact now realize that... Um, there is a very historical uh, background to the secret societies and their activities in the United States. Yeah, I think people are realizing that with um, with secret mysteries, the information that we're dealing with, because we go into uh, we go back to England and we deal with, as you know, uh, Sir Francis Bacon, Doctor John Dee, uh, the era of Queen Elizabeth the First and the things that were happening during her time on the throne and how these secret societies, in particular the Rosicrucians. This is where we get uh, a lot of uh, uh, comments, not only from uh, the secular community, but, al but also from the Christian community and the community of people who research uh, secret societies because you very rarely hear anything about the Rosicrucian order. Mm -hmm. but they are very active and have been historically a very influential 
part of American history. They were, uh, according to some researchers, they were the first uh, esoteric or occult beachhead, if you will, in America. Uh, the first society to come here and, and to form a uh, community called the uh, uh, the Ephrata community in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Uh, and it's still there to this day. We, we talk about that briefly. But it's, it's something that's and it's something that apparently guys like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and possibly even George Washington were familiar with. They were familiar with um, uh, uh, those of the Ephrata community. And, and they were clearly Rosicrucians. Uh, they were also known as the German Pietists. Uh, but this was a group that came. Uh, they didn't come on board the Mayflower. Uh, they came separately. And just as you had Bible-believing Christians, the Puritans, who came on the Mayflower with the hope of God and, and establishing uh, a Christian community to preach the gospel, the, uh, the German pietists, who were Rosicrucians, came over. And when you look at their materials and what they brought with them, it's very clear that they come out of this, uh, you know, secret society uh, uh, background with, with all of the ancient mystery religion stuff going on in their materials and so on. And, uh, and this, this was, uh, you know, a, a non-Christian community early on. And what we do in Secret mystery, Mysteries is we track from England coming into the New World these societies who were uh, initially sent by Sir Francis Bacon, who was the chief of the Rosicrucian order. Uh, he, is, uh, he went on to become what many believe uh, is the first grand master of modern Freemasonry and uh, really formalized, even though Masonry had been around uh, prior to Bacon, Bacon uh, apparently was the guy who formalized the, uh, uh, the whole mystery religion uh, into a systematic, um, organized system whereby people could come in and learn, you know, step one, step two, step three, and so on. Uh, and that ended, that developed into, eventually became uh, what is today known as Freemason. couple questions. Uh, what time frame would this have been? This is uh, late 1500s, early 1600s. Uh, so Bacon died in uh, 1626. I think it was, um, and uh, and he was he was mostly operating. Remember the uh, oh the Jamestown colony mm -hmm. uh, was formed. I think about 1607, 1608. Oh, not yet, right? Yeah, right around there. And they were, it's believed, they were sent by this whole Baconian group. Uh, Bacon had sent. Uh, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh to the New World to scout out the 77th Meridian, according to different researchers and so on, uh, uh, to you know because they wanted to capture that meridian because they believed that it would bring them quote good luck if you will uh, in establishing the New World. Um, also, uh, people are probably trying to fit uh, where Rosicrucianism is with regard to Masonry, and I'll tell you that I do know. And this is from memory now. It's been a while. But in um, that Catholic University library, uh, unbeknownst to whoever's running that joint, <coughs> there was the two-volume uh, encyclopedia of Freemasonry done by Albert Mackey. Mm. Oh, is that right? Albert, yeah. Yeah. Mackey. And in it, it did do a, a breakout on Rosicrucianism. But I have forgotten, and of course Mackey will have a different point of view perhaps also, but in the whole the dovetail framework of occult societies, did Rosicrucianism get embraced and assimilated by Freemasonry? That's a big, that's a big controversial issue. The uh, you find the Rosicrucians distancing themselves from Masons and vice versa. You know, the Masons say, "No, we did not grow out of the Rosicrucian movement." Whatever. Uh, the guy that I look to on this is a guy that we interview for the documentary named Peter Dawkins. And Dawkins is, he's a, uh, he's considered by many to be like the foremost expert on Sir Francis Bacon. He's the uh, English gentleman, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's in Great Britain. He's got an organization called the, the Francis Bacon Research Trust. His work is supported by a guy named the Marquis de Northampton, Lord Northampton, uh, who is the 
the pro-grand master of uh, British Freemasonry. He's the highest-ranking Mason in, uh, uh, in Great Britain. So he's the head of all British Freemasonry, and uh, Peter Dawkins lives in his country farmhouse there in Upper Tyso, just outside of uh, uh, Stratford-upon-Avon. And so he's and he teaches. Dawkins teaches at the uh, the Globe Theater. Teaches the Shakespearean actors there under Mark Rylance, who's the the director. And why? Because along with uh, the Baconian beliefs on early America, comes the idea that Bacon was also the real genius behind the the Shakespeare plays. Hmm. And this is a, an integral part of what Dawkins teaches as well. But. Anyway, uh, Dawkins studies Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry and all this other kind of stuff, and he has a lot of the, you know, access to a lot of the documentation over there in England where all of this stuff was going on. And so uh, his, his argument uh, is that Rosicrucianism preceded what, what we know today as uh, Freemasonry. Um, and that Freemasonry grew out of the Rosicrucian movement. So it wasn't that Masonry embraced Rosicrucianism. It's sort of like Masonry was the extension of Rosicrucianism in terms of what we recognize it to being today. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, there's, there's a lot of debates about, you know, did Masonry grow out of... Uh, the whole idea of the builders' movement, and, and obviously you had masons who were builders, stone uh-huh. cutters, the guys who built the cathedrals, right. and so on. Uh, and then what role did the Knights Templar play in this whole thing? And we talk about, you know, we talk about both. We talk about the influence of uh, Rosicrucianism, and then we talk about the influence of the Knights Templar. And could the Templar influence have been, uh, you know, what led to this embracing of, of uh, all the major religions in the world, uh, because uh, that's what the Templars got into when they, you know, during their time in the Holy Land and so on. But with the Rosicrucians, I mean, Rosicrucianism is, for those who don't know, uh, their symbol is the rose and the cross, and the rose symbolizes the ancient mystery religion. Uh, the you know the Egyptian mysteries, uh, Eastern mysticism, all this kind of stuff, uh, and the cross, of course, represents Christianity, and the rose and the cross is this fusion of the two belief systems, uh, and so it is a, uh, if you will, a paganized Christianity mm-hmm. that is Rosicrucianism, and of course, uh, you know, for those wondering, wow, well, you know, is this really? Uh, influential in our world today, all you have to do is look at the the ecumenical movement. Uh, I mean, this thing, you know, this goes not not only the, to the National Cathedral here in America, it goes all the way to the Vatican and uh, uh, the ecumenical council and this huge ecumenical movement that's been going on through the 20th century. Uh, and we take this whole, uh, we follow this story all the way back to uh, 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 Scotland and uh, in the, oh, what was it, 1492, the same year that Columbus discovered the New World, supposedly, mm-hmm. that's the same year that Rosslyn Chapel was completed. And you find there at Rosslyn Chapel, which is mentioned in the Da Vinci Code, but what, what uh, Dan Brown doesn't tell you is that Rosslyn Chapel is basically this big ecumenical chapel where you have all these Christian and pagan uh, icons that are all you know, carved on the inside of this chapel. And it really is an early precursor to the ecumenical movement of the 20th century. This idea of blending and mixing all the religions of the world and uh, combining them uh, as one and the same. Before we go any further, I want to tell everybody this is the Grassy Knoll, and we have with us Chris Pinto. We're talking about uh, one of his uh, documentary endeavors, which is uh, Secret Mysteries of America's Beginnings, the uh, first volume is the New Atlantis. We're discussing that right now. Um, Chris, you've got a couple of websites people can go to for, um, you know, for different works that you've done. Uh, would you um, lay them on us right now and, and how people uh, uh, could purchase um, either uh, the Secret Mysteries documentary or also the, uh, the, the Megiddo? 
you can go to our uh, our main site, which is adullamfilms.org, and you spell Adullam, A-D-U-L-L-A-M, F-I-L-M-S dot O-R-G, and it's uh, from the Cave of Adullam in First uh, Samuel chapter 22. Um, so that's where Adullam Films comes from. But the company that we're doing the Secret Mystery series uh, under is Antiquities Research Films. And if you want to go there and read more about Secret Mysteries specifically, uh, that's at www.arfilms.org. And, uh, and we've got a, a big spread there and, and uh, talk about um, Secret Mysteries and uh, some of the reviews and, and things like that. Uh, you can also watch uh, the trailer online. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we've also got, I wanted to mention this, we've got another film festival coming up in, uh, in Tahoe, Reno. It's the Tahoe, Reno International Film Festival in August. And uh, we're pretty excited about this because they have, uh, uh, they've accepted the film into their festival and they want to do, they want to bring some of our speakers to Lake Tahoe and have them there and then they want because the film is like three hours long mm-hmm. so what they want to do is they want to show like the first half and then take a, a have like an intermission and then have the the panel of speakers come up you know with the audience and so on and then have a discussion about the information contained in the film a lot of people are and again this is a secular festival so you have a lot of people who are uh, who are available to talking about this kind of information. I think for a number of reasons. One, you know, we talked about Dan Brown and his whole Da Vinci Code deal, where what Dan Brown was doing, as I'm sure you know, was was taking certain historical elements that are true, Mm -hmm. combining them with, you know, a fairy tale that he invented about, you know, Jesus and Mary Magdalene and all this other nonsense. And uh, and then you know turned it into this you know uh, dramatic novel, um, but these uh, these historical elements that you know and and he does, he is a bad historian in a lot of ways, um, and he gets a lot of his information wrong, uh, and that's something that's agreed to by both Christian and non-Christian researchers. In fact, when we were doing the uh, uh, the research for secret mysteries. We interview people on both sides of uh, uh, of the issue, as it were. We interview, you know, Christian teachers and researchers and writers and so on. And we also interview some of the non-Christian, you know, esoteric uh, community uh, guys. And uh, and we 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 have their comments there as well, so that people can see uh, that this information does have a consistency to it. Um, were you going to say something? I'm always going to say something, but go ahead. I'm, you know, play through, bro. <laughs> okay. So, so we interview people on both sides of the fence here. And the one thing that I ran into is I would sit down with these guys one after another. They all debunked Dan Brown. They, mm. they all, even the non-Christian guys who normally research this kind of stuff, they say, yeah, I care about this information, but Dan Brown is terrible. He's just, he's, he's butchered everything. In terms of uh, just mm-hmm. just presenting a, a, an historically inaccurate view of a lot of these same issues, uh, so uh, I don't recommend Dan Brown's book in terms of its uh, historical content. But it has stirred up something in people. When we mm-hmm. were at Roslyn Chapel, uh, and we we got permission to film inside there, uh, and we you, you see some of the uh, some of the footage that we were able to shoot in uh, Secret Mysteries. Um, but uh, I talked to the director of Rossum Chapel, a guy named Stuart Beatty, and he's a you know really nice man. And he uh, he talked about the Da Vinci Code and how, in the past, you know, authors would mention Rosslyn in a book or something in, in some kind of a work, and there would be you know a little bump in interest and that kind of thing in the tourism. But he said he has never seen anything like the Da Vinci Code. It has inspired this. Uh, global interest in that little chapel there in uh, in Scotland, and people are coming from all over the world and mobbing that place. I, I guess because they think they're going to find the Holy Grail there, yeah. something mm-hmm. Brown is talking about in his book. Um, and of course, if anybody's seen the Da Vinci Code movie, you see a lot of the Rosslyn Chapel uh, at, at, right at the end of that film. Um, but it's uh, it's a really bizarre and fascinating place. Um, 
what were you going to say? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm raising my hand, but you can't see me, so okay. you can't call on me. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. No, it's a, well, here's a, there's a bunch of things I want to ask you, and also I want to throw this out for the audience, that if you do want to make a comment or you want to ask a question to Chris, uh, you can do so by using, if you're going to use email, use Visigoth at Hotmail.com. B-Y-Z-Y-G-O-T-H. If you're going to use an instant messaging service, if you're using Yahoo, use Biz, B-Y-Z-1400. Or, um, I heard a loud noise outside. That's not good. <laughs> or uh, you can use uh, MSN, and that's Visigoth. So you got those th- three ways of getting in touch with us, and by all means do so. And that's another thing, uh, Chris, we might... Um, you know, kind of stop things every so often to take some questions, but it's okay with you. Oh, sure. But going back, and i got a bunch of things I've just wrote here, and I want to run them by you. Uh, you're going to be at a Tahoe Reno Film Festival in August, is that correct? Yeah, August 23rd. Mm. Is there any way I can get on that um, panel? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and get me out there. That's a beautiful time of the year. Holy mackerel. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Their, their festival apparently is like right on Lake Tahoe. Oh. I, haven't, I haven't been there, but you know, from oh. the pictures I've seen and, and whatnot. So it looks. Uh, we're we're you know my wife and I are planning to make it into a little family vacation mm-hmm. and just go and, and spend the week. Oh. Hopefully, have a good time. Great move and great time of the year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good move. <laughs> also, I want to ask you: Does a is there any uh, chance that you've got a Sundance in your uh, sights? We are, uh, in fact, Sundance has just this month opened up its um, its submissions for uh, their coming festival in January. Uh, so we are planning to submit to uh, the Sundance Festival. Um, the one obstacle that we face with, with festivals in general is the length of the film, probably more than anything else. Uh, a lot yeah. of the films they show are short films. Right. Uh, or they're films that, you know, 80 minutes long, 90 minutes long. And here we have a three-hour documentary. And <laughs> I was, uh, I was at, when I was, uh, we, we went to uh, Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago uh, because we're shooting for part two in the Secret Mystery series, which is called Riddles in Stone, The Secret Architecture of Washington, D.C. And um, when, I, when I was coming back, I was actually sitting on the plane next to a girl who's like one of the directors for uh, oh, the uh, what is it the A AIF uh, uh, festival in Los Angeles, which is a big festival. Um, anyway, um, and I told her that we you know we had we had actually it was kind of funny because we had submitted our documentary to their festival, but I wouldn't tell her the name of it because I didn't want her <laughs> you know uh, to be to think that I was trying to you know yes. get her to give me some sort of special treatment or whatever but anyway she uh, uh, she asked me how long the film was I told her it was three hours and her eyes you know blew up and she was like oh my gosh you know, a three hour documentary but uh, because I mean in our community uh, for somebody to go on for three hours in, in the community of people who research this kind of stuff is not really deemed a big deal. Uh, there's a lot of very lengthy material out there because it mostly hits the film and video market. But when you're when you get to the secular market and you're starting to talk about things that are going to be uh, that are going to get some kind of a theatrical release or screening or whatever, three hours is is deemed just a just a very long film. But uh, one of the things that I was pleased to hear at Tahoe, the uh, uh, the executive director there called me and she had watched it and you know said she she really enjoyed it and whatnot and she went to her partner and told him uh, and said you know I just watched a three hour documentary and he said three hour doc you know you're not going to catch me watching no three hour documentary <laughs> and so she said well you know it's broken up into chapters why don't you just watch you know uh, one or two chapters and you know see if you like it and uh, she said he turned it on and. Uh, and that he started watching and then was so fascinated with it that he watched it all the way through. He couldn't break away. And uh, that that means a lot to me, you know, as, you know, the filmmaker mm-hmm. putting a thing together. But also I think the information, because it's, it's something that in our community, Viz, I think a lot of people take this kind of information for granted, and we don't realize that people who mm-hmm. have not been studying this day and night for years and whatnot – they don't know. They don't have any idea. And with the way that things are 
uh, happening. There's something I wanted to say earlier. Uh, the, the, the reason why I think there's this interest, A, the Da Vinci Code, B, because of world events. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything that's been happening in the world since 9-11, uh, and now the war in Iraq, and all the controversy surrounding that, I think people are more and more aware something is up, you know. Something's going mm-hmm. on in this world system that we're a part of, and we don't really have control over it like we think we do. And yes, there are bizarre things happening, and what is the explanation for them? And uh, and what we try to do, not only in the Megiddo series, but now also again in Secret Mysteries, is is to provide an explanation. Uh, here's why these things are happening. They're not just a coincidence. And we even tie in, as you know, uh, the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, we talk about a speech that uh, President Bush made at his 2005 inaugural address, and we show the clip where right. he actually quoted at the end of that. Uh, speech in in his inaugural address, he says, you know, quote, when our founders declared a new order of the ages, he says they were acting on an ancient hope that is meant to be fulfilled. And um, what Secret Mysteries does, really, is it provides an explanation for what the ancient hope is that President Bush is referring to. I mean, that's an obvious question. Mm -hmm. You're not going to hear, you know, Bill O'Reilly or Chris Matthews or any of these guys, uh, they're not going to come in and and try to explain what the ancient hope is that President Bush is referring to. But that's a pretty important question. You've got the most powerful man in the world uh, who's uh, who's just been reelected, and he's talking about uh, our founders had this ancient hope that is meant to be fulfilled. Well, he's saying it with uh, uh, a kind of conviction like, hey, we're going to fulfill this ancient hope. So it's a pretty important question to ask, what is this ancient hope that he's that he means to fulfill? And uh, I believe the answer is this whole new Atlantean concept, uh, this idea of building paradise on Earth. Uh, but the question is, the real question is, whose concept of paradise is it? Mm-hmm. You know, Hitler had his concept mm-hmm. of paradise. Stalin and Lenin, they had their concept of paradise. Uh, Pol Pot had his, uh, and America has hers. Uh, and these secret societies, they have theirs. Um, I think the problem is, I think we would recognize as Christians that what man is doing, man is building his spiritual tower of Babel, trying to, you know, erect his own stairway to heaven, as it were. Uh, but what he what he refuses to do in his uh, in his pride and in his rebellion is to submit to God's idea of paradise on earth. And that's what uh, I think. That's what I think this movement rejects. This movement rejects uh, the declarations of God and the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus says, "Without me, you can do nothing," and that is the antithesis of the teachings of the ancient mystery religion. Uh, the ancient mystery religion is that man is really his own power. Right. And he needs to learn to awaken that power within himself, uh, to quit looking on the outside for something to help him uh, to achieve and and to advance and so on, and to recognize that he has it all right within himself. And if he can just awaken that power, then he can ascend, as it were, into glory. Um, And that's, I mean, that's what we're warned against biblically, Uh what we're warned against as Christians. Well, a whole bunch of things, if I can. One, what you just mentioned now, as we go and, and, and anybody can today look on a number of occult websites to see what the other side's doing, whether it be Kabbalah. whatever or um, OTO, um, Luciferian websites, it all really um, centers on Gnosticism and that the individual can be as God. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, and of course, Gnosticism is. Uh Gnosticism is very, uh, you know, if, if, if you read the New Testament, obviously, and you, you get into the letters of uh, John, the Apostle John, mm-hmm. when he's warning against uh, the, uh, the, the, the false brethren, mm-hmm. he, he come, he, that's where he introduces the term Antichrist. This is, you, you've heard that Antichrist shall come, and even now there are many Antichrists gone into the world, you know. 
and then he starts defining all the character, you know, the nature of Antichrist, uh, and uh, those who deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, uh, that this is one of the, the characters of Antichrist, but throughout this whole letter, he's describing the early Gnostic movement, and they had so many different strange doctrines, it's kind of hard to... Uh, uh, you know, to put them all in, into just one box from what I've researched. But one of them was the idea that Jesus was not really a flesh and blood man. He was just a spirit, and when he walked, he actually did not leave footprints, apparently. That's one of the early okay. Gnostic teachings. Now, obviously, not all Gnostics uh, ascribe to that, but that's very much what Dan Brown is writing about in his book, all of these strange and crazy doctrines about, uh, you know, this other representation of Jesus and trying to simply focus upon his humanity while denying his divinity, you know, de- denying that he is God manifest in the flesh, that is at the core of Gnosticism. It is to diminish the character mm-hmm. of Christ and to elevate uh, the person of man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, um, and that is a thread that runs through all of these, what we would consider occult religions and societies. Now, um, Going back uh, to the film, you, um, you you talked about an Atlantean society. Um, can we get into exactly um, what Bacon had in mind with regard to wh- why would he call the, uh, the New World, America, uh, a New Atlantis? Do you want to touch upon where that connection um, might have sprung from? Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, when I was... Uh uh, the, the whole the, the New Atlantis comes from Bacon's book by that name, you know, mm-hmm. New Atlantis, and the subtitle for it is "The Land of the Rosicrucians" or "The Land of the Rosicrucians." Um, so you you really see the influence of Rosicrucianism in in Bacon's background. I mean, Bacon was at heart a very serious intense Rosicrucian. And the Rosicrucians were uh, definitely into scientific advancement and specifically into communicating with angelic beings, communicating with, uh, you know, powers unknown, as it were, uh, both angels and demons, which they would admit to. That's not something that, you know, we put on them. They admit that they would communicate with both good and evil spirits to obtain knowledge Okay, for the betterment, supposedly, of mankind, and um, uh, so this is what this is what Bacon and Dr. John Dee, who was also a Rosicrucian, uh, were into. They were into the you know the the, the advancement of knowledge. Uh, in fact, uh, Bacon launched what what he called his great instauration, the advancement of learning, that all mankind through knowledge would be able to escape his misery, and through knowledge. Uh, could could build paradise on earth. And this is what the New Atlantis concept is all about, and this is really what he's writing about in his, his book, uh, The New Atlantis. Now, what's interesting is if you go and you read the original Atlantis account by Plato, uh, Plato is, is writing about ancient Atlantis, and this was a story that was handed down, uh, and uh, he makes reference to... Uh, uh, Solon, the the log the the Greek lawgiver, who's a great Greek lawgiver, who's actually pretty influential. If you go to Washington D.C. and you go to the uh, uh, some of the, uh, I think it's the Supreme Court building, they have like a bust of Solon there. Uh, so he's considered one of the great lawgivers of the ancient world. Well, Solon was the guy who supposedly journeyed to Egypt and learned this account of ancient Atlantis. And he brought it back with him and so on, and it was handed down. And so now we find Plato recording it. And Plato says a number of times in his account that this is not a fairy tale, but it's a fact. Uh, well, then his story drops off. It finished. It's unfinished. You know, it's an unfinished writing, the original Atlantis account. Well, now you go to the new Atlantis that's being written by Bacon, and the exact same thing happens. Bacon is writing mm-hmm. now about this, this really a secret society that is a continent, you know. It's this island called Bensalam, and these Christian sailors are washed ashore, and they come in contact with, like, this great 
you know, a guy from the House of Solomon, as he's called, and he comes to tell them all the treasures of the House of Solomon. And all the treasures are these descriptions of scientific advancements, you know, tall buildings, flying machines, uh, sound studios, uh, all of this stuff. And when you read the description of the things that he's, that Bacon is writing about, he's writing about things that you and I take for granted in the modern world in America. And... Uh, and so it's, this is where this concept comes from. With that hand-in-hand, hand, uh, Bacon and John D. both, as a number of their contemporaries did, believed that America was Atlantis. Okay? So when the American continent was discovered, or, as it is often said, rediscovered, uh, they believed that what they had found was not just, wow, this neat little place, they believe they had found the site of ancient Atlantis. And this is part of what Bacon records in his new Atlantis. Uh, this, uh, this head of the House of Solomon is talking about that. He's writing about the ancient world and the ships and the trade that went on in the ancient world and so on. And then he talks about uh, that... Uh, Oh, he talks about uh, he talks about and the old Atlantis, that which you call America, okay, uh, and then he goes on and describes what old Atlantis was all about and so on. But Bacon believed, really believed, that it would seem that America was the site of ancient Atlantis. How, but Chris, um, from what you've seen, how do you come down on whether there was an Atlantis? That was not the United States. Was there an Atlantis that, as I uh, guess, as legend or whatever, um, designates was somewhere out in the Atlantic? Uh, how do you feel about that? Do you think that it might have happened? Well, I think I think that uh, I think that Atlantis is, is a picture of the antediluvian world, the pre-flood world, meaning the flood of Noah. Noah, right? Okay, and that Atlantis is the world prior to the flood. And that it was uh, the the ancient society, the ancient civilization, really that God destroyed in His wrath because of their great wickedness. And uh, so now we go to prophecy and we go to the Bible where Jesus says, "As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be at the coming of the Son of Man." And you look, okay, well, what was it like in the days of Noah? Well, the days of if Atlantis was the society of the days of Noah, and the New World Order is basically the New Atlantis, well, now you've got a very interesting uh, connection here. You've got these yep. secret societies that are laboring to rebuild this ancient empire yep. that God destroyed for its wickedness. So, uh, it's, uh, it, yeah, it, there's a lot of implications there. I, this is why I think the New Atlantis is so important, ultimately. And understanding that the New Atlantis and the New World Order and the Novus Ordo Seclorum uh, are all part of the same movement. Um, and that's what we're trying to communicate uh, through the Secret Mystery series, at least in Volume 1. Um, and, and, of course, we're going to build upon the argument from there in Volumes 2, 3, and 4. Um, I, I do want to mention this. Um, you know, it's in interesting. Um, you know that David Bay was on a radio show south of the Bay, which I was somewhat affiliated with. And um, <clears throat> they gave him a pretty, pretty rough ride. Um, I called, not that he needed me to come to his defense, but because I wanted to resonate with a, a, a lot of what he was saying because I was always considered the conspiracy nut when I called in or actually was a guest on the show. And, of course, if you remember then, I was no more, I guess, a minute or two off the air than uh, you gave me a ring. You remember that? Yeah. After I had been on with uh, David. Yeah, now I did not know that you had been on the air. I just oh, called you. Because you saw. Really? Right. Now, I'm going to, as I mentioned then, and I, I hope it's okay with you now, because I think it really would be very beneficial, that folks should realize they can read uh, Bacon's New Atlantis online. Um Certainly, it's in libraries. That's not a problem for the most part. But um, uh, you, you would not. Would you be opposed? I mean, to the fact that they can read this for themselves, even as a prelude to seeing the uh, the documentary. Oh no, I think it would be a very good idea to to read it uh, because then when we talk about because we 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 try to cover a lot of material, and I had wanted to go into uh, more detail on. 
Bacon's book itself, and because he's so very specific when he writes about uh, all of these scientific advancements and so on. I mean, Bacon is considered mm -hmm. the father of the modern scientific method, for those who don't know. Right. Um, he's the guy who basically said, look, if you want to call... You know, he wanted to bring the world out of its superstitious realm. A lot of people focus on Leonardo, and Leonardo was a, a brilliant man for his time. But he was he was he was sort of a self scientist. He did all of this stuff, but he just did it, you know, with himself, and he recorded data and whatnot. Bacon, on the other hand, set down a method uh, by which all men could pursue scientific study, and he he, he came up with it. You know, you clear your your mind of any preconceived notions, you gather evidence, and then you draw a conclusion based upon the evidence that you gather. And it's something that's so simple, uh, but one of the examples that, uh, let's say, Peter Dawkins gives in the documentary, when he's talking about Bacon, Bacon talks about how uh, when he was at university that the professors and the students spent years debating how many teeth a horse has. But none of them actually went out to count the number of teeth in a horse's mouth. They would just philosophize on, well, I think it's this many and blah, 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 based upon, you know, their perceptions of the world and whatnot. And Bacon said, you know, look, this is nonsense. What you need to do is stop talking, go down there, open the horse's mouth, and count his teeth. And then when you count the number of teeth in the horse, then you'll know how many teeth a horse has. Um, and just that practical application. Mm -hmm. You know, that science is, is knowledge gained through observation. Right. Uh, and it's very interesting that today, Bacon is not really taught in our school system uh, and his methodology. While I don't agree with Bacon's theology, certainly not, because Bacon definitely propagated the marriage of Christianity and, and the pagan religions, which I disagree with strongly, um, but his scientific method is being abandoned because of the evolution movement. Uh, because with evolution, you have to abandon science. You uh -huh. cannot obey the principles of science and believe in evolution. Because uh, nobody has ever observed, uh, you know, little dots blowing up and creating solar systems. Nobody's ever observed, you know, dogs producing non-dogs or, you know, a pig giving birth to an eagle or anything. <laughs> so the evolutionary process has never been witnessed by anyone, uh, any part of it, so so it can't be science. Um, and I think, it's just my theory, I haven't gone and tracked it down, but it's it's my theory, this is why uh, most people today don't know who Bacon is. Um, well, for better or for worse, um, Bacon was certainly, certainly an extraordinary human being for any time. Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a very fascinating, complex character. When you read a lot of his writings, a lot of the stuff that he wrote, uh, I mean, he's he's writing quite often from what seems like a very Christian perspective. He's acknowledging the gospel, acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging the plan of redemption and how Christ died on the cross for our sins and things like this. But then he'll start throwing in all of this stuff, you know, about Pallas Athena and Apollo and the gods and, you know, this kind of thing, which is, is very typical Rosicrucian uh, belief. That's mm -hmm. just what the Rosicrucians do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Bacon's a, a very... I, I don't put Bacon in the... Although, who knows? I mean, I don't put him in the, the occultist category in the same way that I would a guy like Manly P. Hall, right. you know, who's, who's writing about how, you know, in his opinion, you know, when, when the Mason understands his craft, then he holds the seething energies of Lucifer in his hand uh, and this kind of thing. You don't find, or at least I haven't found, uh, any quotes like that from Francis Bacon. Uh, they may be there. I mean, Bacon wrote a lot of stuff, so I don't know. But uh, uh, but I haven't seen that kind of thing from him. Um, why not at this point also, uh, once again, let's run through the websites and um, the, um, the purchasing information uh, for both um, the series that you're doing uh, with The Secret Mysteries and also Megiddo. Yeah, if you if you want to uh, if you want to go to our main site where we've we've actually you know uh, brought in a lot of uh, new items you know things that you know we've we uh, uh, we brought in from other ministries to help get their work out there stuff that we believe in 
But for Megato 1 and 2 and for Secret Mysteries, you can go to uh, adullamfilms.org, and that's A-D-U-L-L-A-M, A-D-U-L-L-A-M, adullamfilms.org, sorry. Uh, so you can go to adullamfilms.org uh, and check out uh, the materials that we have there. We're getting ready to launch a new website. My wife is working feverishly. Uh, we're going to have it up in a couple of weeks. But then we have for Secret Mysteries, we, uh, which is under Antiquities Research Films, uh, we have uh, another site, www.arfilms.org. And, uh, and there you can go if you just want to read about Secret Mysteries specifically and, uh, and check out... Uh, Check out, you know, some of the reviews and watch the trailer and uh, that kind of thing. One of the things you said early on, and I'm sure um, the curious have held on to this, as I know I would, <clears throat> had I not heard it before, and that you talked about in the New World, that would be America, the Western Hemisphere, um, they were very intrigued with the 77th Meridian. Yeah, that comes from, a, a, from an author named Duncan Steele who's got a, uh, a book out there called Marking Time, I think is the name of the book. And he writes about, he's, he's really talking about all the lengths that, uh, he's talking about how the establishment of a world calendar impacted world history. And this is what he's writing about. But he talks about, um, he talks about, the Lost Colony and Sir Walter Raleigh, remember, coming over mm-hmm. and, you know, the landing at Roanoke and how supposedly he was trying to establish a colony and the whole thing was a disaster and so on. Uh, Steele's argument, in a nutshell, is that the real purpose for... Uh, the real purpose for Raleigh's expedition was not really to establish this colony, that the real purpose of his expedition was to capture or to find the location of the 77th meridian in the New World because it was uh, considered a sacred meridian called God's Meridian. And uh, the Catholic Church had captured the 77th meridian in South America. Hmm. So the English now, who were who favored the Protestant cause, were seeking to capture the 77th meridian in North America. Uh, and they deemed that essential, apparently, to... Uh, to establishing with good success the new world. And we talk about how, you know, uh, during this time, you've got Queen Elizabeth, for example, calling upon Dr. John Dee, who was known as the Queen's Astrologer, to, uh, uh, to cast the most propitious date astrologically for the Queen's coronation. Uh, and so uh, Dee was doing all this kind of stuff with, with astrology. I mean, today we would refer to this as, you know, as a probably a kind of witchcraft, mm-hmm. you know, we would think. Uh, but in the uh, esoteric tradition, this is very commonplace, you know, to, to you know, find what's the best time. I mean, Masons do, do that to this day. Uh, when they build buildings and so on, it has to be built, you know, the first day that, you know, you do the groundbreaking and so on has to be a certain time of year. And, you know, you want to make sure the sun and the stars and everything mm-hmm. are lined up. And uh, we just uh, uh, interviewed a guy uh, recently who's, uh, who's a co-Mason, and he talked about this, and, and he said, very clearly, you know, Masonic structures are not just thrown together. They don't just throw it up there. They everything is done with with a reason. It's uh, it's done because they are, you know, buildings are built in alignment with the stars because they are trying to tap into the spiritual energies of the heavens mm-hmm. so that these gods and goddesses, if you will, will empower with good luck, as it were, uh, whatever structure is being built. This is why the pyramids and Easter Island and Stonehenge and all these things uh, have this uh, astrologic, the, the astrological or zodiacological alignments mm-hmm. that they do, whatever they are. Um, and I'm not an expert on these things, but the principles involved in terms of why they are built at a certain time of year and why, you know, where uh, the dog star Sirius lines up with it all and mm-hmm. so on is uh, why that's important to them in a nutshell. Uh, that's the understanding. One of the other things I wanted to ask you, whether you uh, got into this um, or not, uh, but, you know, yeah, there is a, I won't say preoccupation, but... Um, um, 
a, a concern about longitude and latitude in a, in a lot of endeavors. But did, did you find it all? And I think you touched upon this. It may not be the right term I'm using, but in that um, in the documentary you did, did you find necessarily that? shall we say, certain cities, especially that would be in the original 13 colonies and states, uh, were along certain, um, was it through, along the 77th meridian? And also, do you delve it all into ley lines? Yeah, we definitely delve into the ley lines. Uh, in fact, it's probably one of the most popular uh, segments of the film. Uh, from the comments that we've gotten from other people. Um, Washington, D.C. is apparently built upon the 77th meridian. In fact, there is, and we show briefly, uh, I was just there uh, this last month, uh, at Meridian Hill Park. They have Meridian Hill there that originally that was built to commemorate the, the sacred meridian that, the, that uh, Washington, D.C. was built upon. And, of course, they've moved the marker from its original location. So it can be a little bit confusing, but if you go to the outside of the park, and we show, uh, uh, we're going to show in Volume 2, you won't see it in Volume 1, we're going to show the plaque there where, where they talk about how they moved the, the original marker. Uh, but anyway, uh, so Washington, D.C. is built upon the 77th meridian, but... D.C. is also built uh, in alignment, in a different alignment, with uh, the early five Revolutionary War cities, and that, you know, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C. are mm-hmm. all built in a perfect alignment along the eastern seaboard. And we show this with a guy named Jim Allison, who's a lawyer, lives in Alabama, and he's got a website where he, you know, he talks about... Uh, uh, what are called ley lines that were that, that are admittedly a controversial issue, and we don't cover that up either. But it's uh, but ley lines, in a nutshell, are thought to be these power lines that exist in the earth, and this is a very esoteric kind of occult sort of thing. And it's believed that a lot of uh, you know the ancient sites, the Great Pyramids, Easter Island, Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these ancient mystical sites, and there's many others around the world. If you go to Jim Allison's uh, uh, website, I think it's called highway.net or something, or just type in Jim Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N, you'll, his website comes up. But he talks about these these uh, ancient mystical sites in China and South America. Uh, you have the city of, you know, the ancient city of uh, Teotihuacan uh, in uh, Central America uh, and and so on. And how all of these cities are built upon these grids or ley lines uh, that run like great circles throughout the earth. Mm-hmm. This is his theory. And it's, it's very interesting because one of these great circles encompasses the five American Revolutionary War cities, uh, including Washington, D.C., basically from Washington, D.C., all the way up to uh, Boston. Um, and... And so the question then becomes, is this just a coincidence? Mm -hmm. Did this just happen? Uh, Or were these cities built, because they are are all built, all these five cities are built in perfect alignment with Stonehenge in England. And the interesting thing there, this is where I think you you can spot some measure of intent. The early American fathers came from England. And those who were a member of the Baconian Circle would certainly have had knowledge of Stonehenge. I mean, these were guys who were totally into mysticism. Uh, you know, Dr. John Dee, who was uh, kind of a mentor to Sir Francis Bacon, had the largest library uh, anywhere in England and probably in all of Europe. He had a huge, massive library that, uh, for its time, uh, was legendary. Even today, people, t- people talk about it. Um, Dee's a really interesting character, just very briefly, so people know. He, is, uh, he was the inspiration, it's believed, for Dr. Faustus and Christopher Marlowe's movie. Yes, yes. He's the inspiration for Gandalf, the old wizard in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, in more modern times, the Harry Potter books 
uh, Professor Dumbledore, you know, the old mm-hmm. professor that with the long gray beard and so on. In the Harry Potter books, he was John Dee, as admittedly, J.K. Rowling admits, that Dee was the inspiration for this character. Dee is also the original Agent 007, the inspiration for James Bond. Uh, and it's because he was uh, a spy in Her Majesty's Secret Service, and his code name, when he would write letters to the Queen, he would sign them uh, with uh, 007 for some reason. That was his uh, secret code uh, that he signed his correspondence to the Queen. Um, so Diaz had a, had kind of a, a you know an, an undercurrent of influence. A lot of people don't know who he is. You're right, mm-hmm. but they know the characters that he inspired very well. Another another um, personage that uh, is very exceptional, but has also somewhat been um, either deliberately or otherwise uh, been somewhat washed away in time. Oh yeah. And I think it's because I mean D in his lifetime D was D was the original wizard. When you see if you go into these fantasy magic shops and you see a guy in a long robe, right, with a magic wand and a hat and you know, casting spells and this kind of thing, that is the inspiration for that chiefly comes from Dr. John D. That's the that's the sort of character he was. He he's he's not kind of sort of maybe a magician. He was a magician. He was a spellcaster. He was a conjurer. Uh, he was he summoned spirits and so on, uh, you know, and communicated with angelic powers uh, to to gain knowledge uh, and so on. And, and a lot of people don't realize that that's really what's behind a lot of uh, a lot of the the black arts. Quite often, I mean, there are those who are you know into the the sign mm-hmm. of like an Anton LaVey character, you know, who just wants to worship Satan and go do some crazy stuff. But then you had some like these really serious sorcerers, honestly, guys like John Dee, who were very serious about what they did. Uh, Dee, along with another guy named Edward Kelly, developed this whole system of magic known as Enochian magic that has inspired, you know, black magicians throughout the 19th and 20th century, including Aleister Crowley, who's probably the most nefarious. You know, without a doubt, you do deal with with him, uh, I believe, in Megiddo, do you not? We talk, yeah, we talk about him and Megiddo, too. Uh, we talk about Crowley and his influence over the music industry right. and the, his whole idea of the new eon, uh, the new eon of Horus, he called it. And, of course, he reveals that Horus is another name for Satan. So uh, you, you definitely see, if you, if, you mark, if you mark the esoteric movement from the time of Bacon and John Dee forward, there's a kind of darkening that happens with it. Sure. Uh, when you get these these characters, when you get into Elias Levi, Aleister Crowley, and then Madame Blavatsky, and so on, uh, these characters get darker and darker. And because in in Dee's day, even though John Dee was into conjuring spirits and so on, we document in the film how when he's working with his partner, a guy named Edward Kelly, at one point they encounter a spirit that begins to deny the gospel, begins to tell them that Jesus is not really God, uh, you know, he's not the Savior, you shouldn't trust in him or pray to him, and so on. And Kelly was so disturbed by it all. You know, and you would think, well, if, if these guys cared anything about the gospel, why would they be disturbed? Right. You would think, well, who cares, right? If you're at that point. But they still had this conscience where the Christian gospel was concerned. And uh, that certainly doesn't endorse, you know, bad behavior and casting spells and this kind of thing. But but it's very interesting. There's an interesting dynamic there. There was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's this guilt and this fear from Kelly, who's even though he's practicing these things, uh, he clearly he's deceived by them. And uh, and you know, he goes on to say that he believed they had encountered an evil spirit uh, because the spirit was denying the gospel. Of course, we got to we got to jump. But um, what I want to do also is, um, yeah, I'd like to talk about this at another date. Uh, and this also ties into the other work you're doing. Um, though we have to go, I hope we can, uh, we, we can get back together again in the not-too-distant future, at least perhaps after Tahoe. Um, but by the, um, <clears throat> as, we're, as we're leaving um, our interview, uh, one last time, please give people, folks, uh, give people information as to how they can uh, purchase the, uh, the DVDs and um, all that you do have to offer on both sides, both with Megiddo and also with uh, Secret Mysteries. 
Rapture for uh, for our Megiddo stuff, and uh, and also you can get secret mysteries there as well. You can go to adullamfilms.org, and that's A D U L L A M F I L M S adullamfilms.org. Uh, there you can get Megiddo one, Megiddo two. In fact, if you get them both together, we give you a deal on them. Uh, and you can also see secret mysteries there, um, or you can go to the official secret mysteries website, which is at Antiquities Research Films, uh, which is www.arfilms.org. Uh, so arfilms.org. Okay. Read about secret mysteries. Listen, thanks so much for being with us. It's been a long time. Uh, hopefully, and seriously, uh, let's not uh, let too much time go by before we do this again, because on what you were just touching upon, uh, also, people need to hear about. Okay. All right, Chris, best to you and the, and the family. Um, and, um, you know, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, have a good Dependence Day. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, Happy Fourth of July, Biz. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Okay. Bye-bye, brother.